Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Today for Spirit in Action, we welcome the Deputy Director of Faith in Action, Gordon Whitman. That Faith in Action title obviously has great street cred with me, but it's respect well-earned, as I learned by reading Gordon's new book, Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire. Gordon is passionate about the tremendous good we can do for this world if we learn how to access our power and work together effectively. He's got 25 years of work on the ground and a vantage point to see which people and organizations are having the incremental and transforming effects to counter immensely wealthy and powerful interests not in line with the common good. We'll talk about stories and changes and community and finding our place in the whole thing as we talk about stand-up with Gordon Whitman, joining us now by phone from near Washington, D.C. Gordon, thank you so very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thanks, Mark. It's my pleasure. And I thought it was wonderful when Gail referred you to me that you're with an organization called Faith in Action, but it used to be PICO. Explain a little bit about that transition since we're kind of in the midst of it right now. Yeah, so the organizing network I work for, which is formerly called PICO and is in 2018 becoming Faith in Action, is 45 years old and works in about 200 cities and towns able to build organizations that they can use to both improve their communities and have an impact on policies of the state and federal level. And we uh, work with about 3,000 religious institutions and people of faith and moral courage all across the country who want to see a different country and want to fight racial discrimination and fight for economic opportunity for everyone. Is this related to Gamaliel? Because in Wisconsin, we have on the statewide level what's called wisdom, and then on local level here in the Chippewa Valley of Wisconsin, where I am, we have what's called Jonah, joining our neighbors, advancing hope. And when you're talking about your organizing principles and stand-up, they seem very close to the Gamaliel's organization. Yeah, exactly. Wisdom is a really good, long-standing, very effective organization that we have that I have a lot of respect for and and indirectly do work with. So, you know, this is a field of faith-based organizing that really is about helping people put their values into action. It's it's very multi-faith. People involved different spiritual and religious traditions, but the commonality is a belief that if we build organizations and if we act in ways that are strategic, we can both transform our communities, but also help people live better, more engaged, purposeful lives. Very similar to the work that Wisdom does in, in Wisconsin. 
Wisconsin. How many big umbrella organizations are there like this? Is this is Gamaliel and Faith in Action, and are there just hundreds of these similar to you, or Faith in Action, which I like because it's close to Spirit in Action, is it one of a relatively small handful acting in this organizational principles that you use? Yeah, there's probably about 150 to 175 organizing efforts that are city or region-based that work out of a faith tradition. So they're organizing people of faith and people of moral courage around, you know, everything from housing opportunities to health care to protecting immigrant families to fighting mass incarceration. But there's probably at least as many organizations that are working in a similar approach to change that are not operating through religious institutions or religious values and are more secular. So we work very closely with a network called the Center for Popular Democracy, People's Action, and they have affiliates around the country. I mean, the truth is that in almost every community in the country, there are organizations that people can become involved in to create change at both the local and state and national level. And, you know, a big part of why I wrote Stand Up was to create more pathways and encourage more people to get involved in direct political activity and community organizing. Because if we don't get more people off the sidelines into these fights and get people in the fights in more deeply and in organizations that operate better and, and more effectively, we're not going to be able to overcome the obstacles that we face right now, which I think many of your listeners are very familiar with that we can talk more about. But we need more organizing, and that's really the main point of Stand Up. You mentioned in the book, actually kind of right near the end, that at a certain point your son wanted to get involved, this is right towards the end of his schooling or graduation, I forget exactly the situation, but in climate change, and he wanted to get some hands-on organizing. And even though you're in Washington, D.C. area, there wasn't an organization he could plug into that he actually ended up working in a soup kitchen doing his volunteer organizing that way. So when you say that there's these organizing groups all over the country, they're not all equal. Some you would rate, I think, as more valuable, more important, more central to what we need to be doing than others. Is that your experience? Yeah, I think both things are true. It's true that if you look in your own community, you can find organizations to become involved in. You know, we organize everywhere, and as human beings, we know how to organize and we know how to get involved, and there are organizations people can become involved in that are doing good work. And a lot of what's developed in our social justice culture are organizations that aren't asking enough of people, that are asking people to do small tasks that aren't necessarily connected to a larger purpose, whether it's signing a petition or attending an event. And part of the point of the book and the argument of the book is that we need organizations that are going to ask more of people, that are going to be there around people's development, that have more of a culture of honest conversation about how race operates in our society, how class operates, that really are as invested in transforming people as they are in transforming the world. And that organizations that people fail really are investing in their development and are treating them as agents, as people who make decisions that operate democratically, are going to be much more effective. And we need more organizations like that. So we don't have enough. We need more. You know, when you say that we need organizations that are going to ask more of people, that seems counterintuitive because people almost universally say, no, no, don't ask me another thing. I've got too much on my plate already. I need less. If you just have me, you know, lick envelopes for an hour, I can do that. But what has been your experience with respect to 
when you ask people to do something that is essentially gopher work versus organizational work? Yeah, I think a lot depends on how you ask somebody. So people need to know that they're wanted for what they are. So the personal invitation is what's essential. And it's amazing how often people say yes to a personal invitation. So a Facebook post or a flyer, it doesn't do it because you don't know that it's really you that is being invited. And our experience within Pico Faith in Action, large number of people who attend events or trainings that are well-structured will come back. And what's interesting is we have a lot of research that says people who come to a rally, that might be an important event, a public protest, important event, help us accomplish a goal, but they're not more likely to come back next time. But if somebody comes to a meeting or an event where they have a chance to meet another person, share their story, they're more likely to come back to a next meeting. And what's even more effective is when they have a chance to be part of a team that's doing some meaningful work. People go meet with their city council person, their mayor, their legislator, much more likely to come back to another meeting and take on greater responsibility. That makes us believe that people really do want to be involved, but they want to be involved in something that they have some control over. Your book is structured around conversations, five different conversations that you say are essential. And I think a lot of people these days feel more comfortable on Facebook or social media. You post something there, you can unfriend someone, you don't have to talk to them. I actually believe in what you do and what you're saying, Gordon, but I also recognize there are a lot of people who will instinctively shrink from direct involvement. You know, just don't talk about those things because there might be disagreement. So talk about the conversations. What's the first one? Yes, and I just say that, you know, as an introvert, I definitely resonate with people who, you know, it takes work for some of us to engage other people. And I love Facebook and I love the Internet and its capacity to connect us to other people. But we do know from history that most change has happened when people get together face-to-face. It's often involves small groups that are connected to each other into larger movements. So we've got a lot of historical evidence that it's face-to-face organizing that builds the kind of trust and capacity to act that we need to take on very powerful forces. So I did write the book in a way that was designed to try to make breakdown community organizing in a way that didn't have barriers to it. So conversations seem like something that we all know how to do and they take effort, but we understand what it's like to have a conversation with another person versus being lectured by that person and just listening to them. And the book really takes the readers through a framework of five conversations that begin with, what's my purpose in the world? What's my motivation? And commitment is really the starting point for social change. The second step is just really sharing your story with another person, which is really the first act and most important act of social change where you tell your story, somebody hears it, they see you, they respect you, and then you hear their story. The third conversation is really building a team and try to make the point that the social change is by definition a team sport. It's something people do together and that the best way to live a life dedicated to social justice and racial justice is to be part of a team that meets regularly, that's in relationship, that supports each other. And the fourth conversation is building a base of people. The classic work of organizing, where it can be a small group of people, builds a larger base of constituents that are organized to tell a story about Um, W.W. Law, who led the Savannah NAACP during the 50s and 60s, got a job as a postman working in Savannah. And he told me that the two values of that were, one, he was on the street every day talking to people, 
and two, the local power structure could not really stop him because he worked for the federal government. Part of the effectiveness of the Savannah NAACP in desegregating Savannah was his capacity over years to build a base that he could turn out for meetings and the power structure of that city knew that he wasn't just speaking for himself. It wasn't just because he, what he was saying was powerful or correct. It was because there was a group of people that stood behind him. And the fifth conversation is really direct confrontation with people in power. And ironically, it's often the piece that we miss the most in building social change organizations. So in PICO, Faith in Action, we have a lot of experience with what happens to people when they get to be involved in a direct campaign, a, a fight to change something in their community where they're directly confronting people in positions of power. Again, it's, it's fine to attend rallies, attend protests, but if we're going to really create organizations that have power and transform people into agents, then they need to be involved in making change directly face-to-face with decision makers. Throughout the book, Gordon, your attitude seems really positive to me. You're not talking down, this is bad, this is bad, and here's the right way to do it. You don't approach it that way, which is, I I think, a good thing. And yet, there's one very important recent movement that I was very disappointed when it fizzled, but maybe you can relate it to your conversations, why it did or didn't go somewhere, and that's the Occupy movement. It rose up in one spot. People formed these local groups all over, but in a relatively short time, unfortunately, it fizzled. Can you say what organizationally they were doing differently than what you might have advocated? Yeah, I think Occupy is a great, great example. So tremendous impact on the public discussion in the country. So the people who created Occupy and a small number of people who stepped into a lot of uncertainty and found something that really spoke to a large number of Americans and helped shift the conversation in the country, helped put inequality into the middle of our discussion about where we need to go as a country. So very effective at that level. But as you say, really fell short in having a political impact. So Occupy really didn't translate into political power in terms of people being elected to positions in terms of shifting underlying politics of the country. And we saw 2010 midterms, Democrats got wiped out, especially what happened at the local and state level. And you contrast that with the Tea Party, which also kind of, you know, tapped into something deep in a set of people's consciousness, what they want to see happen in the world, but translated into a Tea Party caucus in Congress, really shifted the politics of the country helped lay the groundwork, arguably, for Trump, created fear among Republican House and Senate members and really across the board that if they didn't take XYZ positions, they could get primaried. So that contrast is really very relevant for today because we've had a year of pretty remarkable protest and resistance to Trump and his policies. The big question is, will that translate into political power this coming November and beyond. And we saw some hopeful signs at the end of the year in Alabama and the Senate election in New Jersey and Virginia and their state elections. But a major point of the book, and I just want to underline, is that that kind of protest doesn't translate into political influence without organization. It's mass organization that engages people directly in political activity. You can look at the first Obama campaign in 2008, the number of volunteers that were recruited who were on teams that did voter engagement work. That kind of large-scale volunteer civic participation needs to happen and needs to be aimed at politics. 
I think the other hopeful sign is to look at what Black Lives Matter has accomplished and the ability to go from protest to really building durable organizations that are fighting for reforms in the criminal justice system at the local and state level. And I think that's another sign of the path we need to be on where Occupy didn't have the kind of continuity and impact that Black Lives Matter is having right now. And I think that's a hopeful sign, the kind of change we need. I want to hone in on the kind of conversations that you're advocating in the book, Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire. Again, folks are speaking with Gordon Whitman. The conversations, the very first one where you start engaging people, where you develop a relationship, you say that this is often missing. And, you know, like people come to a mass demonstration, leave. You mentioned the example, by the way, of Saddleback Church. It's the 20,000 or so they have attend there each weekend for their services, but they are embedded in small groups. Explain how that works, because most people just think that this is mass consumer diet. You, you know, you watch the person on the screen, essentially. Yeah, so as a community organizer, the, the things I'm, I'm asking as I'm in a room with people are, one, have I given people a chance to tell their own story? So it might be somebody compelling up front who's getting people focused or excited or motivated, that's great, but don't stop there. And often we rely way too much on the person up front to bring the energy to the room. So I want to stop and ask people, we're going to take five to 10 minutes. We're going to just give people a chance to talk to someone they don't know and share their story. That's really good for introverts because if someone doesn't ask you to do that, you might not do it. So that's a simple act, but it turns out to begin to create an organizational culture, which people realize that they're not just consumers. And then the second question I'm asking is, how do I get that group, of, let's say there's 50 or 60 people in the room, organized into teams? And that can take a lot of different formats, but what I'm, I'm really trying to imagine is that unless I've got a team of people, it might be 5, 10, 15 people who get to know each other well, they're not going to be able to be agents of change. They're not going to be able to make their own decisions. And of course, the challenge of organizing is getting different teams to coordinate with each other. In the book, I tell a story of anti-slavery movement and how in the 1830s, there was a major shift in strategy. And some of it was influenced by reform efforts that were taking place in other areas in the country. Some of it was influenced by slave rebellions, the Second Great Awakening. So there are different forces in the environment that were radicalizing people around slavery. And the anti-slavery movement made a decision to shift from what had been a more advocacy-oriented model to saying, we're drawing a clear line. Every person, every institution, every elected official in the country needs to make a moral decision. Would they stand for or against slavery? Immediate abolition. And then they went out and they built an organizational structure that created chapters all across the country. And that created the opportunity for large numbers of people who were on the sidelines and had energy to come into the movement. So, you know, broken down in any local community, we want to create smaller spaces that people can break people up into teams. And that can be as simple as asking, okay, there's 50 people in the room, let's break up into five groups of 10 people. And let's look at some different areas of change that we might want to create in our community. Let's set priorities. And then we can come back together and look at what we came up with. Small groups and sharing stories. The anti-slavery movement, as I'm 
sure you know, as you mentioned in the book, some of the major energy behind that came from religious groups like Quakers. And, you know, that's one of the things that led me to think that Quakers might be a good group I'd affiliate with, that they have a history of getting on board that way. Does it make sense that this comes, again, from a religious spiritual perspective as opposed to, I don't know, just logical? I think it's pretty common these days for people to think that you can just logically think these things out. And I'm not opposed to logic. I'm a physics teacher amongst other things, right? Math, computer science, programming, I do all of that. So logic has its very valuable place. But in terms of motivation, you say you start with the story. Is that where it started in the whole anti-slavery movement? Well, I think there's a lot of ways to get there, and there's no magic answer. But the abolition movement created a template for social change in this country that combined mass movement with moral claims. And I think the willingness to talk about the issues that we're facing in moral terms, so mass incarceration, racial disparities in education, health care, the concern of the criminal justice system, climate change and its impact on the most vulnerable people and families and communities, the breaking up of families through mass deportation. Those are all moral issues, and we have to be willing to talk about them in those terms. We need to make really clear choices, lay out really clear choices for individuals and institutions and elected officials. When we don't do that, I think we cede values and morality and and ultimately religion to conservatives, and that's a huge mistake. And I think we have a lot of evidence in the history of this country that because of how our Constitution's written, because of um, the size and diversity of the country and our institutional structures, creating large-scale change is difficult. The systems are created really to block that, and that it's moral Um, campaigns that involve large numbers of people that began in local communities. It's been our history of how change has happened, whether we're talking about populism, civil rights movement, you know, we're seeing it now through Black Lives Matter. I think we need to go back to that. So there isn't one religious tradition that's going to be the answer, and religion may not be the answer, and sometimes it gets in the way. But really we're talking about a willingness to see ourselves as spiritual and religious beings and to make claims to morality, to right and wrong, if we want to create a society that is more just and fair. You say, Gordon, that the first step is, what's your story? And I'm wondering if you could maybe walk me through how that is done. I mean, we could do it between the two of us. And I've just met you, Gordon, and you don't really know who Mark Helpsmead is particularly. So how would you approach this? How would you get us to share each of us respectively our story? Or maybe you can coach me how I'd get your story or just give me the hands-on about how to do this. Sure, sure. So in the first chapter of the book, in order to kind of pull out these conversations together, I tell a story of an effort in my town where I live from a group of parents to stop cuts to a program that my son was involved in. It was an autism program and how we, a group of about eight of us, met at a school board meeting where we had come to ask the school board not to cut this program that we thought was very effective. None of us were able to testify at that meeting, so we were feeling pretty disappointed And I said, putting my organizer hat on, let's go out into the hallway and have a conversation. And we just circled up. In that case, the first thing that I wanted to do as an organizer was ask people to take enough time to tell their own story. It didn't need to be half an hour each person, but just take three, four, five minutes and tell your story. Who are you? What's the story that brought you here tonight? What's the story with your child? 
And because we created some space for people to do more than just, you know, hi, I'm Gordon Whitman, I'm Mark, on and on and on, but really to say something about who they are and what motivated them to be there, it began to create glue that allowed us then to work for the next six weeks and really get into a big fight together that we ultimately won. So some of it is just being willing to be intentional about if I meet you, I'm going to ask you to talk to me about who you are, why did you end up running this radio show that focuses on spirituality and social change, what were the experiences that led you to that. So I think we know how to do this instinctively, but we don't always associate it with social change or social justice or political work, and we skip that step. Well, and I also think there's a tendency that is pretty widespread that instead of asking questions, we pose arguments. That does not lead to the the binding together that you need. I mean, you're doing this with faith in action. You're doing it with organization, not only in the school where your your son was at, but in so many avenues, we have a chance to argue and say if we give someone facts that they'll be on board. The story part is missing in so much of conversation, isn't it? Yeah, I think this is not just a problem on the left, but it's certainly a problem of the left. I think it's a problem largely of our society that we're spending too much time telling people and not enough time asking and listening. We know from lots of research and experience that what moves people to change how they look at the world, especially adults, is by doing things, not by being told things. So we don't need to persuade people to support our issues as much as we need to give them opportunities to take action around those issues. And it's the biggest mistake we make in lecturing people and not listening to them. And especially when we're working on issues that have broad public support. The agenda that we're talking about, you know, I talk about in the book, and then if you look across lots of different social justice and racial justice organizations of paid sick time, paid family leave, wages for you to bring up a family with dignity, people working rather than being put in prison, enabling people who come out of prison to find work and find housing, seeing immigrants as the strength of this country. Those all have tremendous support. It was just a matter of do the things we want, have public support. We can check that box. We don't need to persuade people. We need to both give people a sense that change is possible. Because if you don't believe it's possible, then it just sounds like noise to you. And then in some ways, even more than believing that change is possible, you need to have some avenue to do something. Someone has to invite you into an organization where you can work to, for example, reduce gun violence in your community or reduce the number of people behind bars. Those things might have lots of support, but people need organizational vehicles to act on them, and that's what we need to create. So a lot of people's opinion about the world gets shaped through their involvement in organization, not what they come with. And folks, we're speaking with Gordon Whitman today for Spirit in Action. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org. All kinds of resources on that site, including you can listen to any of our programs the last 12 and a half years. You can download them. You'll find links. So, for instance, when you want to track down Gordon Whitman, probably the best way to find him right now is standupbook.org because his book is Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire. Also on the site, you can place comments. And just as we've been talking about the necessity of conversation, we need your voice in this conversation as well. So please post a comment when you visit. 
lead us to other people who should be speaking out via spirit and action and song of the soul are the program we do you can find that on nordenspiritradio.org also there's a donate button this program is 100% full time work financed by your donations not by corporations not by government but by your willing hands and pockets so please help us even more important though and I'm pretty sure Gordon would agree with me on this Local media is so utterly crucial. Right now, about six corporations control 90% of the media in the United States, and that's just too far too concentrated to let other voices out. It serves a purpose of those corporate leaders. So please, support your local community radio station, the kind of folks that carry these programs, because we need a strong local voice. Did you want to agree or disagree with that, Gordon? Cannot agree more, <laughs> Mark. I think corporations can do some things well, but they definitely don't create culture. They don't make good movies. They don't create good food. They don't create good music. Those are what people do, and we need vehicles where people made radio, people made communications and art available, and that's such an important part of the kind of change we have to create in our country and our society. So, Gordon, you mentioned this already in passing, but I want to make it explicit. The organizing principles that you're advocating in Stand Up, they are not principles that are particularly liberal, are they? Is there a different organizing method or methodology that's appropriate for conservatives versus liberals? Okay, so I think they're pro-human. So I think the kind of principles we're talking about where people are seen as fully human and belonging, where, you know, in the beginning of the book I talk about, um, there's a chapter on sort of the world on fire, and part of what I say in it is that all social change effectively boils down to two activities. One, denying and dismantling the idea that some people are better than others. So this hierarchy of human value that in our country is deeply rooted in anti-black racism but almost every society, to some extent, has some hierarchy that falsely judges some people as more worthy or important or valuable than others. So all social change needs to involve the work of saying that we all count, we all matter, we're all equal. And we know that in our hearts. We know that each individual is unique and that we cannot judge people based on their skin or their gender or their sexual orientation or where they come from or what their education is. It's just not true. But that is so deeply embedded in our society, and there's so many forces that want to use and promote difference to divide us. So that work always exists, and then the other work is making society more equitable, which is really more equally distributing resources and opportunities. So social change, at least as I understand it and, and write about it in stand-up, is really that work of equality in distribution of making more equal the distribution of resources and opportunities and denying the idea that some people are worth more than others. So if you buy into that, then you're pro-human. <laughs> now, we're talking about organizations that bring that vision into life. So we can't just talk about the kind of society we want to live in, but then not create it inside our organizations. It's why anti-racism inside of the organizations we're creating is so essential. It's not an optional activity. It's not something that we just look to people of color organizations to say, you do anti-racism work. All organizations need to see that anti-racism work as central to their internal work. So the work of creating an environment where people feel like they belong and matter and count is about creating the society we want in the world in our organizations. 
So whether you call that liberal or conservative, um, if you're committed to that kind of pro-human approach to the world and you want to create that in your organizations and in the world, then I think you're welcome. The key thing is most people who need to be involved in social change process do not see themselves with a label. They don't necessarily see themselves as liberal or progressive. And we need to be willing to talk to people on their terms about what matters to them. That's how we're going to build a different society. You mentioned before the Tea Party as a kind of a successful, maybe populist, I'm not sure, mass movement in any case. Were they people-oriented? And I also wonder about the Trump campaign, which uh, you know, caught so many of us, not by surprise, but by shock. And there's certainly, a, you know, there's still 36% of the population who think this is awesome. Is there something that needs to be injected into those kind of conversations that those of us toward the left, is there something we should be doing different in terms of engaging those conversations? Well, you know, this is a whole conversation about the Tea Party. I would say, you know, start with clearly Koch brothers and lots of other conservative donors have put hundreds of millions of dollars on the table to coordinate and amplify what Tea Party groups have done. And so this is not just a local phenomena. That said, it seems clear to me looking at what's happening is that you have people who really believe in what they're doing and are looking for something to help them make sense of what's happening in the world and are getting it's sort of ironic that you would get a social connection from a movement that says, you know, we're best off on our own. But I think that's what happens is that good social movements not only give people a chance to have an impact on the world, but they help them make sense of the world. I do think when we think about the kind of social movement we need to create a racially and economically just society, when we think about how we take the protest and resistance from the past year and translate it into sustainable social change and political power, we need to be thinking about movements and organizations that not only speak to people's heads and their politics, but help them make sense of the world, provide them with meaning and purpose in the world. And I think that is a big missing piece on the left. It's too transactional, too much asking people to do small things that don't really tap into their being. And I think we can learn something from the Tea Party on that. Another piece that it's kind of, it's maybe my pet peeve, it's something that I feel drawn to, so therefore I understand the draw that it has for a lot of people. There's an anarchistic impulse that's on the left that, you know, just like what you were mentioning with respect to the Tea Party, but the anarchistic impulse says, I'm not a joiner, I'm not going to be part of what you're doing you know, it's that tendency is far too common, I'd say, such that I was very excited back in 2004 after George W. Bush was president, led us into the Iraq war, did tax cuts for the wealthy. People were reacting. And I saw people in 2004 during John Kerry's campaign who for all of their lives have identified as independents, but finally decided they had to participate in a campaign. So that anarchistic impulse runs pretty deeply. Does storytelling overcome that? I mean, I really think there's. it's hard to get people to the table to have the discussion when they say, no, I'm myself individually. Yeah, no, it's not, and storytelling is not enough. We need more organizational discipline. We need more political discipline. We need more strategic discipline. It's not enough to just have a thousand flowers bloom to ask everyone to do whatever they want. So 
we need to create lots of avenues for people to come into organizations. People need to have opportunities to be part of teams where they're making decisions, they're setting goals, they're responsible for pieces of work. Again, it's one of the things I think that made the Obama 2008 campaign so exciting. We saw it also in the Bernie Sanders campaign where there really was an invitation for people to be part of those campaigns and to lead them. So that's great. And we need discipline because we're up against very well-organized, well-resourced forces. There's a small number, as you said, about the media, six companies controlling most of the media. Uh, we're talking about a fairly small number of very wealthy individuals and families who built a big array of institutions that they're using to shape people's consciousness and to shape politics. We need to be much more strategic about how we're thinking about social change. And sometimes that can feel abstract. So one of the things I talk about in the book and the discussion of strategy is that if you're at a meeting and you're talking about how do we improve things in our community, there's kind of three questions to be thinking about. One is, how are we making changes that have a direct impact on people's lives? I've been very involved in working with folks in Indiana, Indianapolis, on building out a new rapid transit system in their city, in their county, and involved going to the state legislature and getting a ballot measure approved that would allow them to raise taxes in Marion County, Indiana, Indianapolis, to fund a billion-dollar mass transit project and also fighting to make sure that the bus routes and transit access was racially equitable and was used to narrow gaps in people's access to work. That work of delivering benefits people can see and feel in their own lives, like it takes me less time to get to work. So that's the first question. Are we doing something that people can see and feel in their own lives? And then the next question we're asking is, are we changing how decisions get made in our community? So are we creating more power for ourselves? Are we, for example, we're involved in a big effort in Florida right now to re-enfranchise a million and a half more people who've lost their right to vote due to criminal convictions. That will not only help individuals who will then be able to vote and also find work, rent housing, and eliminate more of the barriers that keep people from reintegrating into society when they're coming out of the criminal justice system, but it also makes Florida a more democratic place. Lots of efforts to have automatic voter registration, community-driven political financing of campaigns, things that make it more likely for us to win things in the future. So that's the second question. How are we making our city, our state more democratic? And then third, what's the story we're telling that makes someone say, yeah, I want to be part of that movement? And we need to be thinking about all three things, and that's what strategy, if we're thinking about all three things, then we're being strategic. And which conversation is that? It's really how we confront power. So, so the, the last chapter is really, you know, for people who want to think about, you know, I'm part of an organization and we're fighting to do X, to reduce gun violence in Milwaukee or to improve our transportation access to connect people to jobs in Indianapolis or to reduce the number of people behind bars in Atlanta and reduce our jail population because it's full of people who really are better off in drug treatment or mental health facilities. So we're involved in a fight like that. The chapter on power, how we use it, how we confront it, really is a chapter on strategy. And I, I've spent the last 25 years working as a community organizer and as a coach and strategist, helping people think about how they use what they have to make change. And that's really, I think that'll be useful to people who, whether they're organizers or volunteers or involved in any kind of social change effort, 
think through, like, what do we know about creating strategy and winning? And that's why I put winning in the title of the book, because ultimately we're up against very powerful forces, and people get involved in things because they want to win. And we need to be able to just own that our goal is to win in this battle for social justice. The name of the book, again, folks, is Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire by Gordon Whitman, who's here with us today for Spirit in Action. When you want to track him down and track down the book and organizations with which he works, StandUpBook.org has the links and the information you need. Gordon is Deputy Director of Faith in Action, and that's a relatively new name, PICO, P-I-C-O, is what it used to be called, and it's kind of in transition now. So Faith in Action is an organization you'd like to check out as well. One of the organizations that I've had long-standing connection with is the American Friends Service Committee. And when you were talking particularly about confronting racism internally, making it part of the organization, I've been particularly impressed by the efforts that the American Friends Service Committee has been doing internally for that. What internally does Faith in Action do to confront racism within the group? Yeah, great question. So we've been doing, probably about six years ago, made an organizational-wide decision that we needed to do more work to put race and anti-racism at the center of everything we do as an organizing network that we needed to become an anti-racist organization and do that work both internally and then in thinking about our public agenda. So in terms of our public agenda, really encouraging people, whatever they're working on, to include a racial equity dimension to it. So working to improve public education in our town, that's great, but let's do that for all students, but let's also make sure that we're looking at what are the racial gaps in achievement and reading levels and college attendance And we need to set goals and put in place very specific policy demands that would close racial gaps. So uh, just an example of that, we're very involved in Pennsylvania through our affiliate power and leading the effort to create an equitable school funding formula in the state. As part of that work, the organization power championed the racial dimension to it. So there's a big gap in access to good quality education based on the income of different communities and lower-income communities have less access to resources, good teaching, but there's also on top of that a racial disparity to it. So we've got to be fighting both of those fights at the same time. So that's on the public side. Inside the organization, there is knowledge that people need to have access to and then learn about race and racism and how it works, microaggression, how it plays out in individual relationships between people, how organizations have tendencies, especially if they're led by and founded by people who are white, they can develop a white culture that becomes seen as somehow everyone's culture but isn't how white people can gatekeep for communities of color as opposed to really standing as allies. So we're really trying to teach about implicit bias, about the way in which our society is structured with a hierarchy of value based on skin color. This is knowledge that anyone involved in social change needs to learn and then put into practice. So knowledge and skills and really trying to teach and reteach people how to build organizations. It's really clear that we need to build a multiracial movement. And this is certainly peak on faith and actions perspective that we're not going to get to the place we need to get to without having a multiracial movement where everyone can come to the table. And that movement has to be racially conscious 
and really understand that dismantling racism, calling out discrimination, and shifting our implicit ideas about who's valued, whose opinions are valued, on race and gender needs to be work that we all do. So we have caucuses, we have a black caucus, a white caucus, Latino caucus, that API, so that are doing work internally to become more clear about how we limit racism. There's some great resources and research. We work very closely with John Powell at the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society, and who's done a lot of teaching about implicit bias and part of a whole movement of people working on implicit bias, racial anxiety, how people, you know, earlier in the conversation we talked about kind of the Tea Party, and clearly a lot of what's happening in this country and this society and the globe is as we get climate change and large-scale migration, tremendous economic inequality growing there's a, a tremendous amount of racial anxiety of what about my place in the world? And there are people who are exploiting that. Trump is, you know, exhibit number one, but he's not alone in this. And in that context, we've got to give people other frameworks to make sense of what does it mean to live in a multiracial society? We know in places like Wisconsin and the Midwest that as states and communities become more racially diverse, public support for investment in education, anything dealing with children goes down. See, white people don't see people of color as part of the community that they want to invest in. That can be countered, but if we don't talk about it, it won't be. It will just be used to divide us. So we've got to have an explicit conversation about why is it do we want to invest in children, even if those children seem different than your own children, because they're not. They're not different. But it takes work to help people see that because implicitly, because of the messages they get in the society, they're going to withdraw their support for the public sector. So we can't ignore racism inside or outside our organizations. And the idea that just let's focus on class and don't worry about race, let's build something inclusive, we don't talk about it, it'll go away, doesn't happen, not going to happen. We need to talk about race or it's going to be used in ways to divide us. I am in favor of that point already, Gordon, but I do want to offer a little challenge because I I think that there's something problematic on the way that we deal with this on the left. I think you made the statement something to the effect that we absolutely cannot do our work without confronting racism, which I actually agree with. But that is continued to, well, we can't do our work unless we confront our gender biases, which I also agree with. It continues on down, and at a certain point, it could be, you know, 0.1% of the population has a particular issue that we've been discriminating against. And I'm opposed to those discriminations, right? But if you say discriminate against left-handed people or people who like snakes or whatever, why can't the conversation go on? I think that actually a lot of social change has happened ignoring racism. I think that perhaps the major change that happened in the 1930s happened even though the country was deeply embedded in racism at the time. Yeah, I think it's a both and. So, and the key is to go back to the way in which racism or any hierarchy of human value is completely connected to unequally distributing resources. So the two things go together. The reason why we have all these crazy ideas about some people being more valuable than other people based on race is in large part because philosophers, theologians, try to justify racial discrimination. So it's the discrimination that really we're trying to eliminate. The ideas are a function of that discrimination. 
if we don't address economic inequality, access to work and good education and a decent income and the disparities around that, we're not going to be able to get at the forces that are driving racism. But if we just think we can focus on let's distribute, let's work on raising wages or increasing benefits and we don't address the way in which race is being used to justify inequality, we're not going to make much progress there. So we've got to do both things. That's the major point of the book in that we can't have a division of labor where some people over here, maybe in the union movement, and we're not going to talk about race. We're just going to focus on raising wages or winning better benefits, increasing the number of people in unions. But we're not going to talk about race. People over here are saying, well, you know, we're focused on anti-racism, but we'll let other people work on raising wages. We need to see those fights as interconnected and dependent on each other because they're fueling each other. Let's talk a little bit about the, I guess maybe it's the faith part of faith in action that you're part of in this program, is spirit in action. I was kind of surprised in the book when one of your examples of good community organizers that came up was Moses from the Bible. It tickled my fancy that you included that example. Could you sketch out what I'm referring to there? Sure. I mean, Moses is a good example of a reluctant leader. And I think a lot of us, whether we are embedded in the Bible or or it's an important part of how we think about the world or it isn't, have this experience of wondering, am I that person or really I don't speak that well. There are other people that are more charismatic. There are other people that maybe are more political or a million different reasons why I think I'm not necessarily the person to step forward here. And I think fundamentally, and it's where the book starts, is that we each face this choice of do we get involved and do we let other people carry that water? And, you know, what's interesting about Moses, who sort of becomes like this classic example of somebody who leads his people into freedom is how reluctant and how, how hard he argues with God in his conversation that choose somebody else. So that's really why I started there. And, and part of what happens is that it's not just him being unclear whether he should lead, but he really doesn't know if he has confidence in the people he's leading to freedom. And those people aren't necessarily ready themselves to go to freedom. So that dynamic is classic to all the social change work I've ever been involved in. The level of doubt people have individually and then as groups that change is possible is always a big part of the drama and the realization that we have more power than we think is really what community organizing boils down to. Because if people realize how much power they have to recreate and reorganize their towns, their cities, their states, and the country, we could create a lot of change. But it's that message that, no, you don't matter, you don't count, it's always been like this, it'll always be like that, that keeps so much injustice in place. And listen, for stand-up, really, if, if you're someone who comes from a faith background, you'll see things in the book, but it's really written for an audience that's very broad, and you don't need to be a spiritual or religious person, I think, to get something out of the book. Or, and I don't think people will feel like the religion is very heavy-handed in it. It's really meant to speak to people who really believe something could be different in the world, and I think that makes you spiritual. That having been said, Gordon, could you say a little bit about where your faith and energy and spirit comes from? Yeah, so I am, I'm Jewish, and I was brought up to believe that each of us is created in God's image, and you treat people with respect and dignity as a result. So that was probably the 
biggest and the clearest lesson I remember from my parents and from my religious experience. And then I grew up very involved in our local synagogue. So that also taught me kind of the role that faith institutions and communities can play in, in creating a sense of community and very strong values from my religious tradition and my parents that, you know, you get involved. And if you're going to live a good life and contribute, then you participate in what's happening in your community. So I work and have worked with people from many different faith traditions and spent a lot of time working with the Catholic Church, particularly in, in inner city communities and huge respect for the Catholic Church and, and other faith institutions that have really made a deep commitment to fighting poverty and walking with people who are being excluded and are marginalized and vulnerable in the society. So I think religion isn't always where it needs to be and sometimes it gets used to justify things that are, are wrong and oppressive. But I have a lot of hope that faith is one resource that we can use to create change. We, we can't cede it over to conservatives. We need to own religion, faith morality if we're going to create a, a different society. Amen. I would definitely say that, or amen, or however it's pronounced in Hebrew. I, I understand it is a word that I should be able to pronounce differently. Yes, it's shared. <laughs> yes. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Gordon Whitman. His book is Stand Up, How to Get Involved, Speak Out, and Win in a World on Fire. The website, standupbook.org. Go there. You can get the book. It's a fairly easy read. I just finished this morning and enjoyed it thoroughly. The five different conversations he talks about and the pieces of the puzzle that we've only been able to talk about aspects of are fully spelled out in the book. So please get a copy of it and spread the word and join in. Find your place where your story fits with organizing and makes a difference in the world. Gordon, you've been doing it for, what, 25 years now? You are Deputy Director of Faith in Action. PICO is what the organization used to be called. People find that link on standupbook.org. You've been doing the long-haul fight. I think you must have found your calling in the world, and I'm thankful you did and that you joined me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciated the conversation. And again, standupbook.org is the link. You can't remember that. Remember nordenspiritradio.org, and I have links to all my guests. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.